The following audio is from a sermon series entitled The Mystery of Marriage. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 5:21 through 33. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you're just joining us, we are in the middle of a seven-week series on marriage. The, the joke is that if you want people to stop coming to church, what you need to do is preach a, a series on money, right? Nobody wants to hear what Jesus is telling them to do with their money. However, if you want to attract people, if you want your church to grow, what you need to do is to preach a series on marriage. That's where everybody comes out of the woodwork, right? You want to, you want to hear what Jesus has to say that's helpful for your marriage. And while we hope to see continued growth of our church as we live in community and on mission, obviously there are places in the pews where the, the people who aren't here yet can occupy those places. We want to see our church grow in another way. We want to see our church grow in maturity. And so that is what this specific sermon series is aimed at, growing us in maturity in the faith, because you can say that, that the, the quality or the caliber of the marriages within the church will determine the overall health of the church. And so that is why we're willing to devote seven weeks to studying the topic of marriage. And I realize that as we dig into this, uh, we have a diverse crowd here at Sacred City Church. Really, there's every, on, on the whole relational spectrum, we have people falling in different places, which I think is quite amazing. We have singles who are maybe unhappily single, right? The people who are begrudgingly single, they are waiting and longing and praying for the day where God would bring, bring a, around the right person that they could set off into the future with. Now, there's also singles who are happily single that are enjoying the season of singleness that God has given them. 
There are those who are dating or maybe are engaged that are warming up to the idea of marriage. In fact, I think that's really the only reason why Christians should date is, is not to just have fun, but to date with the intention of pinpointing your spouse. We date for the purpose of marriage. And then there are those who are newlyweds, young families even, been married for less than a decade. They're getting the feel for marriage. The, the struggles of daily life are surfacing, learning how to live with another human being. It's this fun and hard time in life where things are coming at you fast, and it's just a matter of learning how to love your spouse well. And then I realize there are people who are in this room who have been married for decades. They, they may be experts on marriage. God's blessed them with a thriving and rich marriage. In a lot of ways, these are the people that, that us younger people ought to look up to and admire what God has done in these marriages. But I also realize there's marriages that have been existing for decades that are not like that. They're maybe unhappy. They're not thriving. They, they've come to a place where they've just sort of called a truce on things and put up with how hard life is just to get through. And then I realize there are widows and widowers here who have loved tremendously and daily are reminded of the absence of the person that they loved. Now, if I were here with the task of giving good advice for everyone on the different points on the spectrum, my job would be near impossible. But today, I do not come to give advice. I come to open up the Bible, open up God's Word. And what we find is that the Bible doesn't give advice in the sense of take it or leave it. The Bible gives us God's directive on how life works best. Because God had invented marriage. God knows how it works, just as Nicholas Otto made the combustion engine. He knew that it required a certain kind of fuel in order to make it do what it was meant to do. And so in the sense, God shows us how marriage works best. But not only that, he shows us what the purpose of marriage is, what the destination is, that, that it's for the renewal, for the glory of God and the renewal of all things and being united to Christ. In fact, if you go through the book of Ephesians, you can see that that is one of the main uh, points that the Apostle Paul is trying to get across, is that, that Jesus is uniting all things in heaven and earth to himself. And we can see how this is an immediate spiritual reality, that, that when your faith is in Jesus, we are united with him, that he identifies with our sinfulness at the cross, and he allows us to identify with his righteousness in heaven. Now, this spiritual reality kickstarts all of creation falling in line with this. This isn't an immediate thing for all of creation. It's not a, a snap of the fingers and it happens instantly. God is working for the renewal, for, the unify, uh, for, the, for unifying all things in Christ just as a skilled gardener works to cultivate a flower bed. See, in a sense, God gives every Christian a trowel and says, come work with me. Get your hands dirty. And, and marriage is the first flower bed, one of the first flower beds that God goes to work at. 
He, he weeds and prunes and nourishes and feeds. And though marriage has always had inherent beauty, the weeds of sin have created dysfunction. So God is reclaiming order in the flower bed of marriage. He's reestablishing beauty, recreating a voluptuous and flourishing garden. And what we've seen so far in this series that an essential key, or I would even say the essential key to recovering a joyful, fulfilling, purposeful, lifelong marriage is to remember the gospel. Right? If you want to have a fulfilling, joyful, lifelong, purposeful marriage, the key is to remember the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that non-Christians can't have a good marriage. That's not what I'm saying. If there are non-Christians that are experiencing this joyful, lifelong marriage, there's a sense where that's God's common grace to them. But in the bigger picture, they miss the point of marriage because Apostle Paul tells us that marriage points to Christ and his church. Verse 32 in Ephesians tells us that the chief job of marriage is to point to what Jesus has done for his unfaithful bride. Now, all of the Old Testament prophets, all of, all of the rebukes in the, the New Testament point to the fact that God's people, God's church, the people that, that Jesus has come and laid his life down for, has been unfaithful to him. That we were like sheep gone astray. That we, we find ourselves enticed by other spouses, so to speak. And though Jesus consents our unfaithfulness, the wandering of our hearts, Jesus doesn't discard us. He doesn't look at us and say, you know what, once you get your act together, then you can come around and, and come back here again, and then we'll, we'll figure things out and go from there. He doesn't say, come back when you can love me rightly. Jesus' love for his church, his unfaithful church, compels him to give himself up for her, that he would come and lay his life down to the point of death. And he's, he's literally saying to us, saying to you and me, that I'm going to love you to hell and back. So Jesus lays down his life, and in the resurrection in defeating sin and death for us, for paying the price for our unfaithfulness and, and rising from the grave victorious, Jesus wins our affections. See, in this love that Jesus has for us, there is nothing better than to be loved like that. Unfaithfulness happens when we are unaware or forgetful of how sweet it is to be loved by Jesus. And so in this sense, when, when the love of God is real to us, when it's not just a, a theoretical concept, but something that is so real that it's, it's tangibly felt in the depths of our soul, the gospel powerfully reorients our love. That instead of being, you know, half in, half out, instead of being wishy-washy with our love for Jesus, we can set our love for him and say, Jesus, I am 100% in to you. And I'm wholly devoted. 
to God. Now, marriage mirrors this kind of love in an imperfect way. Because here in marriage, you don't have Jesus, the perfect Son of God, and and the unfaithful church. What you have is two sinful people joined together in a covenant. Now, last week, Eric uh, helped us by unpacking this, this, what marriage is being bound together, not in a contract, but in a covenant. A contract, see, a contract says, here's my end of the deal, here's your end of the deal. If you break, if you break your deal, then I can be out. I'm just going to move on, find somebody else. There's always an exit clause in a contract. But a covenant says, I am here no matter what you do. Here's, here's what you can expect from me, and here's what I want to expect from you. But you know what? At the end of the day, no matter what happens, I am still here for you. I'm going to be loving even when I don't want to, or even when I don't feel loving. Whether my feelings are hurt or there are unmet expectations or even the heinous act of adultery. Now, this is not permission for us to go and be adulterous and and have uh, affairs with people who are not our spouse. But this is the kind of strong covenantal love that says, no matter what, I'm going to be here. I'm going to love you the way that Christ has loved me selflessly without condition. But the reality to this love is that it is hard, very hard, super hard. It's costly. Nobody realizes when you're standing up in front of all your people in your wedding how costly it is going to be to love another person like this. But Jesus does. Jesus knows exactly how hard and how costly this is. But, but what we're told that for the joy that was laid before him, it, it, he wasn't scared off by the difficult or the cost of loving the church like this, but it was for the joy that was set before him. Jesus gave himself to the hard, costly work of loving someone else. In this sense, we have to remember the gospel if we want to love our spouses well. Now, another key to recovering, and this is where we're going to spend most of our time today, another key to recovering a joyful, fulfilling, purposeful, lifelong marriage is realizing the priority of marriage. The priority of marriage. This week, we're going to jump down to verse 31. If you've been tracking with us, you've been waiting for me to step on the landmine that is verse 22, and I promise you we're going to get there, but I'm trying to work uh, to create a a foundation here before we get into the nitty-gritty stuff. And so let's, let's take a look at verse 31 of Ephesians 5. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now what Apostle Paul says in verse 31 is actually a direct quote from Genesis chapter 2. This is nothing new to the Jewish people. This is nothing new in, in, in the concept of marriage. It's been around since the beginning. In fact, if we're going to flip back to, to Genesis chapter 2 and, and kind of work our way through some of that this morning. So if you want to put your finger... In uh, Ephesians 5, flip to the very beginning of your Bible, Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to start to unpack some of this. Now, 
at this point in the Bible, right at the very beginning, God has been creating. He, he's created light and dark, the heavens and the earth, the land and the sea, the fish and the animals and the birds, and he's created man, and he looks at it all, and he says, this is good. In fact, when he looks at man, he says, this is very good. There's this cadence of create and affirm. Create, this is good. Create, this is good. And what we see in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, is that this pattern is broken. Take a look. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now here, the, the, the cadence is broken. It is not good that man should be alone. God senses a legitimate deficiency in Adam. And what he's pointing to is the problem of loneliness, and God's solution for loneliness is marriage, right? The second half of verse 18, I will make him a helper that is fit for him. Now this tells us two things. One that loneliness is a valid reason to pursue marriage, right? Loneliness is a valid reason to pursue marriage. It's not that you, you, you're out looking for romance all the time, and it's got to be some sort of romantic uh, thrust into marriage, but there's a sense where uh, I feel like I'm lonely, therefore I want to find a companion to share my life with. See, romance can be cultivated. But the second thing tells us is that marriage is meant to solve the problem of loneliness, not perpetuate. There are some people who are in this room who have marriages where you just feel lonely. And that's because marriage is meant to be a relationship that has a depth to it, that, that solves this problem of loneliness where two souls are together and, and they know, are known and are knowing of the other people. So in Adam's loneliness, God marches the animals before Adam, and he gives them the authority to name them. And, and as they walk by, Adam goes, yeah, you know what? That one for sure is called a hippopotamus. Right? That, that's a cow. Uh, that's a platypus. And with the, each animal that walks past, Adam has a growing realization that these creatures are incompatible partners for him. That, that there's a sense, he, if he were a jigsaw, puzzle piece. There are no corresponding puzzle pieces, not even dog, man's best friend. That's not, not suitable for Adam. So God says, I'm going to make a helper that's fit for him. And when we hear this word helper, some people bristle at this language. They, they instantly think of some sort of relationship where there's a superior and inferior person in the relationship. They think of it as Batman's the, the big man and Robin's just some puny little sidekick. Or, or if you're, you're baking and you have a four-year-old who's helping, who's your little helper, they're not really doing anything to contribute. They're just creating a bigger mess. This idea of helper, speaking in terms of husband and wife, is insufficient. In fact, unbiblical way to think about God creating a helper fit for Adam. In fact, when we look through the Bible, we see that God himself plays the role of helper in our lives. Psalm 46 tells us that God is our refuge and strength, 
our very present help or helper in a time of trouble. And so what we see that a helper plays an integral role in the well-being and flourishing of the other person. In a true sense, Adam and Eve are better together because she is unlike the beast. And Adam, what happens, God, verse 21 of Genesis chapter 2 says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that God had taken from the man he made, he he made it into a woman and brought her to the man. See, God makes woman from Adam's rib, which is unique to the way that God made Adam. See, when when God was making Adam, he took dust from the ground and, and, and basically heaped it up in a silhouette of a man, and he blew life into it. But then here, for Eve, what he's doing, he, he's taking a piece from Adam, right, from his rib and forming woman around what's already been created. Now, theolog- theologians tell us that this God taking a rib from Adam is the basis for their equality. Matthew Henry says that God did not make Eve out of Adam's head to top him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. And then we see, verse 22 shows us the very first ever wedding ceremony. It says that once he had made Eve, he brought her to the man. This is like God himself walking Eve down the aisle. And when Adam sees her, he erupts. Verse 23 holds the first human words spoken, at least recorded human words spoken in all of history. And the first words out of man's mouth that are directed to a female, are, it's not a cat call. He doesn't look at her and objectify her and see her as a person to be used to his own advantage. He gushes with poetry. Take note, men. Are you responding to your wife the way that Adam responded to his? Are you you doting over her? Are you generating romance and expression and affection for her? See, I think this is key because not only does it affirm your wife, but it expresses a deep thankfulness and worship to God for giving you such a gift. Right? The reality is you are now better because of her. And if you don't believe that, your mind is crooked. In verse 24 and 25 in Genesis, go on. Therefore, here we, we hear, have heard this already. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, this is a, a peculiar thing to say. Not, not so much the thing about being naked. That, that's one of the benefits of being married, right? But the peculiar thing is, is how... There's this directive of leaving the father and the mother because the 
Adam and Eve don't have a father and a mother. Have you ever thought about that? Like, why would, why would God be saying this in the beginning of, of the creation when there's no such thing as mom and dad yet? Here's why. Because Moses, he's the one who's writing the Genesis account for the Israel people, people of Israel. And as God is giving him this narrative of creation to write down and to document and, and to share with his people, this would have been some, an oral tradition that would have been passed down and down and down from generation to generation. But as Moses is documenting this in written form, God tells him to insert this essential commentary to the unfolding narrative. This is what's going to make sense of marriage for the future generations. And so right out of his conception, God unmistakably establishes the definition of marriage as well as the priority of marriage. Now, Eric, he helped us last week to understand sort of the, uh, the essence of marriage, the commitment of covenant in marriage, but we have not yet quite talked about the design of marriage, what God intended for marriage, the components of marriage. And, and what the scriptures tell us is God's design for marriage has been and always will be one man and one woman in heterosexual, monogamous, lifelong covenant relationship. That's the definition of marriage. Just like your car will always run on the same type of fuel, this is God's design for marriage forever. And we believe that marriage and all things work best according to God's design. And so we, we said, this is what God is affirming. This is the design for marriage that God says, this is what it looks like. Now, I realize there might be some objections here, and, and I'm going to wade my way into them. But some people look at this and say, well, you know what? You're not accounting for all the polygamy that's going on in the Old Testament. What's the deal with that? It seems that God doesn't ever condone, or actually he doesn't condemn polygamy. In fact, we see big heroes of the faith. Abraham, he's got a side chick. David, he, he's, you know, his deal with Bathsheba. Think of Solomon and his hundreds and thousands, well, I guess thousands of wives and concubines. But in every instance where polygamy is put out there, it shows that people are sinfully veering away from God's design because in these this polygamous relationships, vexation compiles. There's always trouble and rebellion, and it never works out well. This is why there's... The Christian precedent is, is not polygamy. It's not to have sister wives. It's to be devoted to one woman. Because if you think about it, at the end of the day, it's hard enough to be devoted to one person alone. It's it pretty tricky when you add more than one. Now, the same goes for other marital arrangements that are surfacing in our culture, and specifically gay marriage, and listen, I, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time hammering this. This is not my intention here, but it's something that needs to be said because I've been having a lot of questions about this over the last couple of months, so I just want to lay it out there. I don't want to hide anything. 
We believe that the Old Testament and the New Testament both prohibit and condemn homosexual marriage or homosexual relationships in general. We believe that this is contrary to God's initial and timeless design for marriage. And some people might say, oh yeah, well the Bible's outdated, all those things about homosexuality, that was centuries and centuries ago. We've, we've advanced socially as a, a people now, but I don't think that's the case. I don't think we move on beyond biblical principle. And some people might even look at it and say, well, Jesus never condemned homosexuality. And to that, I would say you're right. Jesus doesn't condemn homosexuality, but he does affirm God's initial design for marriage, the same design that we see in Genesis chapter 2, one man, one woman being united as one, We see that repeated by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, which we're studying. And then Jesus himself says in Matthew 19 the same exact thing. He says, one man, one woman, bound together as one, and what God has brought together, let no man separate. See, Jesus clarifies by telling us the right way, not going through and telling us all the wrong ways that he's opposed to, that he he doesn't believe are in line with God's design. He tells us the right way. He tells us, he affirms God's design for marriage. And I realize that there are some people, maybe even even you sitting in the pews, find this to be narrow-minded, especially given the cultural climate where it's becoming something that's widely accepted. And, And listen, I am willing to be misunderstood. I'm willing to be criticized for this. Because at the end of the day, if I have to choose between popular opinion and God's word, I am always going to put myself in line with God's word. Now, I say all this, and then I need to say this. Just because Sacred City holds to a biblical view of marriage doesn't mean we hate the LGBTQ community. That's a a huge misconception. That that if you aren't for someone, if you're not for their agenda, then you automatically become hostile toward them. That you hate them. That That is a misconception. And here's why, because the people of the LGBTQ community are people who have been created in God's image with inherent value and dignity and worth, and we are called to love them. See, but here's the thing, loving someone doesn't mean you have to condone their behavior. You don't have to be about the same things that they're about. Think, think of it as like a, a mom of an inmate, somebody who's, who's broken the law, right? The mom can look at her son or daughter, whoever it is, probably a son, because men fill up most of the prisons. She can look at her son and say, I love that boy with my whole heart, but I do not condone what he's done. See, that that is a real representation of love. In fact, love actually wants to see the beauty of people come out. That we want to see transformation happen, loving someone to their best. And so we at Sacred City, 
we hold to the biblical view of marriage while committing to love people like Jesus loved, who loved the prostitutes and the tax collectors and those who were marginalized and outcast to society. We love like Jesus loves without compromising the truth and design of God's marriage. And listen, as Christians, we want to be on mission to people who aren't like us, people who don't necessarily share our heterosexual views of marriage. We want to love them. We want to share with them uh, the good news of the gospel. And the reality is that, that their sexuality and their preference of sexuality is not necessarily their biggest sin. Like, you have to realize that. That that's not their biggest sin, that there's other places that are bigger and more pressing where God needs to go and, and invade their heart and go to work. And so we want to share the gospel with those people and trust the Holy Spirit to work out salvation for them. We want to share the radical and transforming love of God that has found us and is changing us and addressing our sins and our idolatries. I feel, I feel like I had to say that. I'm not going to come back to that, but, but I wanted to make that clear. And so after God defines marriage, one man, one woman, in lifelong heterosexual covenant relationship, God shows us the priority of marriage. And when I say the priority of marriage, I'm not talking about getting married in a hurry, like hurry up and find a spouse sort of priority. I'm talking about the relationship of a married couple and how that now takes priority over every other human relationship that you have. He says that a man should leave his father and mother and cleave. That's, that's old uh, King James Version language. I like it because it rhymes. To leave and to cleave. Or, or the ESV says to leave and hold fast to his wife. See, what we're seeing here is that God takes two people who are independent from each other and he's, he's melding them together. That two become one flesh. Now, in the ancient world, this is really a, a big concept to leave mom and dad and cleave to your spouse. Because mom and dad are your people. They're your support. They're your lifeblood. You share the same DNA with them. You would have lived with them and worked for them and traveled with them. They would have been present with you throughout all your life. In fact, that when you would grow up, you, you wouldn't necessarily move out of the house. What you would do is you would build an addition onto mom and dad's house, and that's where you would now live. You had this deep and profound tie to your biological family. But now... What scripture tells us is that marriage creates a new and stronger relational tie where, where two people aren't just part of the same people group. They actually become one flesh. Now, this doesn't mean that you lose your personality and you, you sort of blend into each other like two, you know, I don't know, like you're, you're two blobs mixing up together. No, you, you still retain your own personality. You still retain the, the defining characteristics that make you you. But now your mindset isn't just me and you. It's now a mindset of us. And this bond is so strong that the priority is put there. Now, this doesn't mean that you cut ties with your biological family. Like, see you later, mom and dad. Thanks for everything. You've been great. I'll, uh, maybe I'll send you a card at Christmas. 
No, you, you can still maintain relationship with your biological family. It's just now that the priority, the precedent is placed upon your spouse. And if you look at verse 28, verse 29, we'll flip back to Ephesians 5. The Apostle Paul tells us that loving your spouse is basically like loving your own body in the sense that the two become one flesh. He says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. See, in marriage, we are putting the priority on our spouse to nourish and develop companionship and intimacy and friendship with them, to protect and to cherish, to fight for and defend. Now, not doing this, not taking that initiative and moving toward the other person is to express contempt for yourself, right? It's to lack care for your own body. And there are too many marriages that are more like a a cohabitation situation that two people, two single-minded people are trying to work together rather than a, a complete mingling of souls, If that's what marriage is like for you, then you have a misunderstanding of what God did on your wedding day when you and your bride or you and your husband stood before your, your witnesses and God was present and he actually made you, he infused you into one flesh. Now I think there's a great deal of marital problems today that arise out of our hesitancy or our unwillingness to leave mom and dad and cleave to our spouse. In a pretty obvious case, right, you get a newlywed that moves in the basement of mom and dad and they're there with, without some sort of end date, right? It's kind of like, yeah, we're here until mom and dad kick us out sort of a thing. right? That, that would not be... a. a a very physical representation of leaving and cleaving because you're still under mom and dad's umbrella of safety and provision and and their own household that that you're still very much attached to mom and dad. Now listen, I'm not saying that there aren't any circumstances or some situational times where you might need to move in with mom and dad. That's not what I'm I'm speaking against. I'm talking about a, a, a consistent or habitual living under mom and dad's domain, right? If your mom is doing your laundry, if she's doing laundry for you and your wife, you, you, there's some issues, right? I, I think of uh, everybody loves Raymond, like Ray Barone. Yeah, sure, he moved out of his parents' house, but his brother Robert's still there. But Ray moved out of his mom and dad's house, but they're there every single day. They live right next door. It's like he can't get away from them. But I, So I think that's a really basic way you can see if somebody hasn't left and cleaved to their spouse yet. But for most marriages, it's not necessarily that physical leaving and cleaving that's, that's not happening. It's a lack of relational shift in priority where your mom or your dad is still functioning as a, a pseudo-spouse. You spend hours a week on the phone with them. Uh, they're the first person that you go to with good or bad news. 
right? That, that your, your parent has become like a BFF, and you rely heavily on their support. So when, you, when you're sad, mom or dad is the first person you go to. I'm going to make a general statement. There's always an exception, but ladies typically struggle with this the most specifically in relationship to their mom, that God has blessed them with a mom who has loved and nurtured them for, for 18, 20, 22, however many years it's been. They have a, a tight relationship. But when it comes to leaving and cleaving, she isn't ready to shift her attention from her mom to her husband. And fellas, listen, fellas to their own selfish gain can be tolerable of this because they see this unbalanced relationship and leaving and cleaving means that he doesn't have to do the relational heavy lifting for his spouse, right? Her mom is going to be the shoulder she goes and cries on. Her mom is going to be the one that she runs to when she's struggling with anxiety or fear. And so he can just sit back passively ignorantly with the boys watching football while she's burying her soul to her mom. Now listen, men, if this is you, if you're letting your wife have that kind of relationship with her mother, you need to wake up to this boyish desire that you have. You need to step into the responsibility, reject the passivity that might come, and step into the responsibility of loving and nurturing and cherishing your wife. But mom and dad aren't the only relationships that maybe need to have this sort of shift of priority, right? That's what, scripture starts out with that because it goes, as, it's directed at the most intimate of relationships, but, but we're living in a time where some of us in the room, our, our most intimate relationships before marriage isn't with mom and dad, it might be with best, best friends or siblings. That maybe... We turn to our sibling or best friends in the way that we would turn to our mom and dad. Or maybe, maybe it's, it's our work or our hobbies. Right? These are the things that I'm, I'm most concerned about. That's a priority in my life. I have these career goals that I want to get to. And you know what? My wife or husband, you're, sort of, you're there and I acknowledge you. But, but if it comes down to it, I'm going to spend most of my time, my priority is going to go to work. We see these pseudo-spouses arise, things that we become more devoted to or prioritize more than our spouse that God has interfused our souls with. Now listen, I think this is really hard, especially when it comes to our best friends, of, of leaving behind, sort of shifting the priority in relationship. But there's a friendship aspect to marriage that is often overlooked, and we're actually going to spend a little bit of time talking about that next week. But this friendship of marriage, this priority for this relationship has to be fought for. That we should never stop dating our spouse. That we should always be willing to sacrifice me time to have better us time. And, and for a lot of us, that means being intentional and setting aside time for this, to be present, right? to turn off the TV, to turn off the phone, to leave it in another room. To, to find a babysitter for the kids and just go for a walk and ask good questions 
ask things like, what are your hopes and fears in, life, in this season of life right now? Where do you feel vulnerable? How can I help you? How can I better love you? And, and I think that when we hear this, there's going to be this idyllic sort of like we have one conversation and it's all kind of worked out and now we're all on the same page. But this is really a process. And when we step out of our comfort zone, when we step into this new territory, we need to be gracious with our spouse when they make these attempts and fail. And in a non-demanding way, we need to teach them or help them learn how to pursue and prioritize us. And then we must be willing to reciprocate because it's a two-way street. And the last, I just want to say, like kids, kids can inject themselves into a marriage and become a black hole of neediness that causes you to focus all of your time and attention into them and have no regard or very little regard comparatively for your spouse. If you're constantly trying to keep them on their set routines and their play dates and you're pouring yourself into them to the exclusion of your spouse. Now, I'm not saying to neglect our kids. That's not what I'm going for here. But what I'm speaking about is to love your spouse in a way where they know that they're prioritized over your own kids. See, if you're going to bed at night and you're too exhausted for 30 minutes of conversation, if you're too exhausted to... to, have some sort of romance in your life. There are some issues there. Again, there's some circumstantial things. Maybe you've got a health condition. Maybe you just had a baby or something. That, that Maybe you've got a little bit of grace there. But if it's a consistent pattern throughout all the seasons of your life, there's an issue there that needs to be addressed. Because when your kids are going to move out, things in marriage are going to become really difficult then. If you thought it was hard now, it's going to be even worse then. And, and so the best thing that you can do for your kids is to put your marriage first. That way you know it's going to last when the kids leave the house. And that way you model for your kids the priority of marriage in your own life. See, another way that the priority of marriage can be undermined is by the culture, maybe the tradition or rhythms and norms that we have experienced in our, our biological families. That, that the way that we experienced life growing up uh, and witnessing our parents' marriage isn't going to be the same as what our spouse in, in, uh, encountered in their experience. Right? There's going to be conflict when it comes to holidays and how we spend our money and how we practice generosity and hospitality. Where do we invest our time? How do we serve the church? What sort of lifestyle are we going to have? What kind of roles and dynamics? And we're going to talk a little bit that, about that later on, but, but there's some really practical roles that we've got to figure out how we're going to live together. And so marriage is going to require you to leave behind some of the emotional baggage or, or sort of experiential baggage that you've had with your parents. Now, I'm not saying that everything has to be scrapped, but there are going to be certain things that in order to preserve unity in your own marriage, you're going to have to be willing to compromise on. Right? If, you, if you refuse to discipline your kids because your parents were abusive to you, you're still holding on to something that your, your parents are impressed on you. Right? There's a sense where they still control you. Or if you saw your mom be humiliated by your dad and manipulated. Right? If that keeps you from being 
open and vulnerable to your spouse, there's still something about mom and dad that you need to leave behind. And I think that I could spend probably another 30 minutes at least, maybe an hour, talking about these really practical things that we can do to reprioritize our life around our marriages. But I think maybe the most helpful thing that we need to do is go and spend time with our spouse and have some of these hard conversations. We We need to ask the question to their face and not get defensive about it. Do you feel like you are my number one priority? That, that might be a question you need to go, have, uh, go home and ask today. Right? Maybe, maybe if you have a desire for a spouse to be number one, that's like really practical. That's the, st- the steps that we need to start taking. But I realize that there are people in the room who, have, who don't even have that desire to prioritize your spouse, that you see work or friends or mom and dad or, or our kids as something that's more worthy of prioritizing in our life. And we really have to do some heart work to change that. And I think the key to this heart change is, again, going back to the gospel. And in this sense, remembering verses 28 and 29 of Ephesians 5, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, who loves his wife, uh, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Here it is, just as Christ does the church, and he makes us members of his own body. See, to, to, to have this sort of transformation, this mindset change, requires us to set our eyes on Jesus and his attitude toward the church, his bride, to you and me. And, and remember that Jesus has united him to your, him, not united you to himself, just as he's prioritized you. He's come after you and chased you. That's the way that we ought to treat our spouse. Because when you've been loved that way by Christ, when you know the way that Christ has prioritized and pursued you, that changes you. That makes you want to become more loving. Now, unfortunately, there are some people who are never going to be satisfied with their spouse. Or maybe there's even people who, who don't, who maybe are putting their effort forward for that and they don't feel that reciprocating. And I just want to say, if, if that's you, I'm praying for you. I'm praying that the Lord would meet you and remind you of how deeply loved that you are and give you the endurance to keep on being faithful to your spouse. But if there are people in the room who are just constantly needing and needing and needing from their spouse. There's a sense with that, that they're never satisfied. Even if that person is, is making every single attempt to make them number one, always needing more, that's because they're looking to marriage to be their savior. They're looking at their spouse and they're saying, I want you to be Jesus for me. And when you over-prioritize or over-emphasize or or try to pull from marriage everything that you need, you turn marriage into an idol. And so in the sense, if you're looking for your spouse to love you and satisfy your deepest needs, your spouse is incapable of loving you like that, no matter how hard they try. The only 
person who can love like that is somebody who's perfectly selfless. Somebody who's perfectly willing to set aside all of their own agenda or their own stuff to pursue and to love and to cherish you. And the only person who can love you like that is Jesus. See, this is why the foundation of marriage has to be the love of Jesus. It has to be. Because the gospel is where we find everything we need. So in a sense, we receive what we need from Jesus. It frees us up to love other people. But it also supplies our needs so that, that when our spouse doesn't love us the way that we need, when we're not prioritized the way that we ought to be, we still know that Jesus' love is set upon us, that we are the apple of his eye. In fact, the Lord's table shows us what Jesus was willing to do in order to unite us to him. That Jesus was willing to go to see his body be broken, his blood be shed, that those who trust in him, that those who look to him for all that they need in life and in love would be satisfied by what he's done for us. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for Jesus and the way that he's loved us, that he's prioritized us, and, and just even knowing that he didn't come and he didn't make an idol out of the church. Really, his, his main objective was to glorify you, and God, you are glorified when you call sinners back to yourself. So Father, would you give us faith to cling to Jesus as the better, truer spouse, the one who loves us so deeply and profoundly, and that having received the gospel and the good news of your love for us in our hearts, would you free us to love our spouses, our future spouses, even our church family, for our good and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.